Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Our reading this week is Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 26. 20 chapters is a lot to cover. Much of it is a repeat that we've heard in Leviticus and Numbers. So I'm going to try to hit the highlights of it. We start chapter 6 hearing the great commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is known as the Shema. The Shema means to hear, and so it is um, repeated regularly by Jewish believers and repeated many times in our New Testament. As a matter of fact, Luke chapter 10, verse 27 is my um, favorite verse in scripture. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is likened to this, love your neighbor as yourself. This includes three areas of our being. Uh, it addresses our heart. Um, we pray to keep our heart close to God. We fast to keep our soul close to God. We give up anything else that might be more precious, that might become more valuable to our soul. And we give of our resources, of our, that our might, um, the things that we have, our ability to gain resources, we give and share because it reminds us that they come to us through God. There. Um, then we talk about telling the story again to a children, raising up the next generation, continuing the faith, and keeping our children close to God. It's one of the things that too often in American society we have delegated this. I'm going to take my kids to church, and I'm going to make it the children's minister or the Sunday school teacher or the youth minister or the pastor's job to disciple my children. And really, Scripture over and over encourages parents to bring their children into the faith, to model it for them, to live it in the home to teach them about it, and to ensure that they become the next generation of faith. Your church, your church family, when we baptize an infant in a Methodist church, we promise to come alongside you and do all that we can to support you in bringing your child to faith and to support one another in our own faith as we grow and develop. John Wesley had a good bit to say about Christian education and nurturing the next generation. If you want to happen to look those up, his sermons are numbered. And so the popular sermons in the numbers 94, 95, and 96 all talk about Christian education. In chapter 7, the Israelite people are told to completely destroy the inhabitants of Canaan, in particular to completely destroy their religion because that will help them avoid being led astray by it later. And we know that it becomes their continual journey of um, being drawn into worshiping other gods. Other things become new and novel, more exciting, more ecstatic experiences um, to it. We're influenced by someone around us. And so it's this need to just remain 
really faithful to our worship, our worship experience, because the new and the fanatical can distract us from the faithful continuation of what we do. We see it in American Christianity with church hopping. A church gets popular and people all flock over there because they have a good band or a good choir or a charismatic preacher or they're just the hot spot. You sometimes can't even identify it. But I believe God rewards us for consistent staying middle of the road, following and being faithful with our lives, our hearts, our minds, and our souls. Okay, that's enough about that. Chapter 8 reminds them to don't forget God. Don't, especially when things are good, don't forget that the good things came from God. It's actually quite easy to forget God when things are going well for us. And it becomes in the moments of difficulty and challenge when we realize we can't do it on our own. We become very aware of that, that we will tend to turn toward God. We can get a little bit of arrogance in there, and we are reminded not to do that. I have a dear friend who is a Jewish believer, and she talks about growing up when we would go out to eat. I would say the blessing at the beginning of the meal. She would say a blessing at the end of the meal. And she said she grew up, her tradition had them bless the food at the end of the meal because it was a reminder that when you are full and satisfied, not to forget the Lord your God, so that when you are full and satisfied at the end of a meal, you pause to remind yourself that the goodness, the fullness that you now feel comes from God. That theme kind of continues in chapter 9, where Moses reminds them to don't come to think that you deserve all these blessings. Don't come to see yourself as entitled to all of this. And in chapter 9, verse 25, we see Moses pray an intercessory prayer for his people. Um, He gets between God and the people. He cries out on their behalf. And that's what intercessory prayer is. When we go to God and cry out on behalf of those we want to see um, delivered from addictions, healed from their disease, or in particular to, to turn from their rebellion or their hardness of heart and have a softened heart and mind so that they can respond to God. Chapter 10, we hear the story of getting the second pair of tablets. You remember Moses threw the first pair down when he came back and found them worshiping the golden calf. We talk about what is the essence of the law, and we're told um, in chapter 10, verse 16, circumcise then the foreskin of your heart and do not be stubborn any longer. This was never just about ritual observance. It has always been about the heart. What I think the law tries to do is teach us to, um, it's a form of fake it till you make it. Like if you do it long enough, it will get in you and become part of who you are. But to become truly Christ-like, we have to let the Holy Spirit get in us and make us Christ-like from the inside out becomes that kind of transformative experience. In chapter 11, we're going to begin to talk about rewards for obedience. And chapter 11, verse 18, you shall put these words of mine in your heart and your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your head and fix them as an emblem on your forehead. This is the beginning of um, a Jewish practice called phylacteries. They have little boxes that have scripture in them. In particular, it has the Shema. Back over in Deuteronomy 6 that we talked about. Um, and they put it on a scroll and they put it in the box. And the box has straps and they literally tie it to their forehead 
and they tie it to their arms, bind it around their arms during times of prayer. Um, You can Google phylacteries, P-H-Y-L-A-C-T-E-R-I-E-S, and you'll be able to see kind of what those look like. Chapter 12, we talked about Deuteronomy is going to talk to us about how to worship God and where to worship God. There's very specific ways. And so this is going to talk about we destroy all the pagan shrines. We're not going to worship anywhere else. We're not going to repurpose other religion stuff. We're going to worship God in the way God tells us to, where and when and how God tells us to worship. So there is a prescribed place for our worship. In other words, worship of the one true living God is not just a free-for-all. We can't just make it up we go. We can't just do anything we want to. If we want to be in relationship with the one true living God, we enter into that relationship as God tells us through Jesus Christ, and we do it in the ways he tells us, by being in prayer and scripture, spiritual disciplines that connects us to God, being in fellowship with other believers through a church, and by sharing that gospel message and news to other people. Those become how we live if we want to be in connection with the one true living God we cannot just make it up and do our own thing. We then talk a little bit more about um, purity of, of worship and worship emphasis. We move over into chapter 14. This We've talked about the second commandment with chapter 6, and we've talked about the third commandment starting with um, chapter 14 now. Um, in particular, you'll notice cutting. You're not to lacerate yourselves or shave the forelocks of your of the dead, um, you're, for you to be holy to people. Those are more religious practices of other religions. Like, don't adopt their way of doing things. Do things our way. Um, we now talk about clean and unclean foods. We can go back to Leviticus 11 if we want to see a little bit more on that. And in chapter 22, we now begin talking about the fourth commandment. Um, so there are ties and things that are involved here. There are yearly, every three year, and ele- and every seven year activities um, that we are supposed to do as part of our gratitude and our grateful response, or at least that the Hebrew people were involved in doing. Um, that carries over into chapter fifteen, and in chapter fifteen, verse four, there will, however, be no one in need among you. Because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that your Lord your God is giving you as a possession to occupy. But then in chapter 15, verse 7, just three verses later, if there is anyone among you who is in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land, do not be hardened or tight-fisted towards your needy neighbor. So in other words, share. So it starts by saying there won't be any who need, and then backs up and says, but if there is. So... Verse 4 gives us the ideal, that toward which we are working. Verse 7 gives us the reality. And we know that in the New Testament, Jesus says he's captured in Matthew 26, 11, John 12, 8, and Mark 14, 7, saying it is written that the poor will always be among us. Um, so we work toward that ideal, but we haven't realized it. Chapter fifteen ten advises us to give liberally and be ungrudging when we do so. To give with a cheerful heart is the way Paul refers to it in the New Testament. We're, we're to share. We're not to hoard. We're not to be scared. We'll never have any more. That's a scarcity mentality. 
there is more than enough with God. Food can be stretched. Money can be um, shared. Things can be shared. Love can be shared. There is enough. Um, And we should not live with a scarcity mentality. In chapter 16, we review the Passover, the Festival of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost, and the Festival of Booths, which is sometimes called Shavuot or um, Tabernacles. And those festivals, these are the three that all able-bodied adult males are commanded to go to Jerusalem um, to observe. We come back to even some more um, forbidden forms of worship. Chapter 16, verse 21, many of your translations may say sacred poles. Those are Asherah poles. Um, that is the That is a foreign deity, so that is worship of a foreign god. We continue talking about some of that and talk about legal decisions by priests and judges. There's judicial authority and there are responsibilities on their behalf. And then an interesting passage, seventeen, chapter 17, verses 14 through the end of the chapter, talks about royal authority. Now, we're a long way from Israel ever having a monarchy. Right now, they are a theocracy. God is their leader. God is their king. They're going to continue to have judges for a number of years before they finally are going to insist that they have a king. And King Saul will be the first king that the prophet Samuel anoints for them. There are those who believe that this passage was inserted back, that after there is a monarchy, and these were the rules it is brought back in, there are others who believe Moses was seeing forward. There's God's plan, and then there's the plan that y'all are going to insist on. And so this is how that needs to happen. I'll let you decide which of those you think is happening. In chapter 18, we talk about the privileges and the responsibilities of the priests and Levites. They don't receive land. They don't get an allotment or inheritance like the other tribes. So the things that are brought to the temple, the things that are given as gifts and tithes to God, become part of taking care of those who handle the worship. It's not so very different from the fact that now our churches pay for pastors and, and ministers and support staff, um, your gifts and your offerings, a portion of them go to help others and into missions. And a part of it goes to support those people who help you um, stay connected to God and um, kind of organize and conduct our spiritual um, life together. We then have some practices, child sacrifice, divination, and magic that is all prohibited. And it uses the word abhorrent. Abhorrent is related to abomination. And those, when that word is used, it almost always refers to a religious practice associated with another god. So child sacrifice, divination, and magic are associated with other worship, worship of other gods, and they're not to do it because there's a difference in those who hear a word from another source than from those who hear a word who from God. Because right after that, in chapter 18, verse 15, it's going to talk about that prophets will be raised up from you, and you should heed those prophets. So the source is what makes the big difference in whether a word is being heard, whether something is divined or prophecy or that is the source that makes a big difference. There. Um, chapter 19 goes back to talking about cities of refuge, which we've talked about before. Um, you can't move your neighbor's property boundaries. Like we have to be honest 
And I mean, when somebody sets up and marks, this is the end of my territory, he shouldn't have to put a guard over it. Like if that's his boundary, leave it that way. Be honest. Same thing about witnesses. When when you testify, when you speak something, it needs to be the truth. Remember that they were an oral culture. They didn't have written contracts. Most people wouldn't have even been able to read there. It mattered. Your word was your bond. Your word was everything. If you couldn't be trusted with your word, then you had no real value. Nobody could really be in relationship with you. So honesty and the value of your word and keeping your word were a high priority for the people of these ancient times. We get rules for conducting warfare. Um, We discuss murder, um, particularly when the person is unknown. And then we come to interesting um, passages about marrying female captives. Um, There's rules for that about the rights of firstborn. Remember Jacob and Esau and one stealing the other's birthright. And we now have this rule, not permitted to treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the disliked in there. So you inheritance doesn't come by favoritism. It comes by birth order. I'm not sure that's any less capricious um, there, but it's the rule. We talk about rebellious children. Uh, if they want to obey your child, ooh, um, stone them. Don't recommend that. Glad we don't do that anymore. But it is frustrating. We raise teenagers and they're rebellious um, to us. But we don't practice that anymore. And I am very grateful. We continue to talk about crimes and honesty. And in chapter 22, a couple of interesting ones that I want to pull out for you. Verses 9, 10, 11. Um, I'll talk about mixing. Don't mix things. Um, Don't mix two kinds of seed in your vineyard. Um, Don't mix the animals that you plow with. Don't wear clothes made of different materials. No mixing. The rule here, it's about purity. Purity of heart, purity of mind, purity of worship. And so this is one of those quirks that it's like purity of not mixing stuff as well. And I also want to point out verse 5, a woman shall not wear a man's apparel, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. And here's that word abhorrent again, for whoever does such things is abhorrent to the Lord your God. It may very well mean that cross-dressing was part of worship of some of the cultures that were around the Israel people, particularly um, around temple prostitution and those kinds of things. But it may also go to the fact that you had to be able to trust who you were dealing with. Women were not going to pretend to be men because there were different rules as far as whether or not their word had to be paid attention to, whether they could witness in court. Well, a woman couldn't testify in court. Um, a woman couldn't be held to her word. Her husband or her father could overwork, override her bond. Um, and that men shouldn't pretend to be women. Um, it was the idea of Why would you want to be in a role that was lesser? Um, I am very thankful that we are in many ways moving in a better direction with how we see um, the genders and that. But basically, if you were born in a role, you were supposed to stay in that role. Then we're going to go on to talk about sexual relations. Um, A lot of rules for that. Virginity is valued. Adultery is condemned. Um, 
rape is kind of sort of condemned. Um, if you rape a married woman in town, you kill them both um, because she should have yelled. In town, somebody should have hurt her. If you rape her in the country, then then she gets to survive. Um, she's not killed for being a victim because she could have yelled. She could have cried for help and nobody hurt her. Um, if she's single, though, now she becomes his wife. Yeah, not good rules around rape, uh, around seduction, maybe, um, but not among, not, not around true rape, forcible sex. Uh, it's also a pretty harsh um, penalty for adultery. I understand they needed to be able to trust, and we've talked about that in a previous podcast, um, to trust that, but still it's a very harsh punishment. In chapter 23, we're going to continue being a little bit harsh and talk about who gets excluded from the assembly, from participation in the religious life of the community. Any male whose genitals were abnormal is excluded. A child of incest is excluded, even though that child would have been unable to control anything about the conditions under which he or she was um, conceived. Moabites and Ammonites are forever <laughs> prevented from being coming a part of the Hebrew people. Like it says, not even until the 10th generation, or yours might say to the 10th generation or even to the 10th generation. But what it's mean, not even, <laughs> not even to the 10th generation, you shall never promote their welfare or their prosperity as long as you live. Um, I'm going to point out right here, Ruth was a Moabite, and she ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. So there have always been exceptions to these. On the other hand, Edomites, for they are kin, and Egyptians, because you lived, you weren't always oppressed when you were living among the Egyptians. They were good to Joseph um, and his brothers. It was the later generations that were enslaved. The third generation from now, let's put a little distance, but the third generation can become part of us and worship the one true living God. We talk about sanitary matters and humanitarian ways. We talk about marriage and divorce in chapter 24. Marriage was really a protection, and the, the conditions of divorce are a protection from exploitation of women. And I know it has been down through Christian history. Women have been sent home to stay married, told they could not leave as a Christian, could not leave their marriage. I certainly never want to make light of a relationship ending. I still believe God's intention is that we find a person and we spend the rest of our life living with and loving that person, getting to know one another um, growing together, growing and changing as we become different people over the years, but really living our life out together, um, leaving our families of origin and cleaving, becoming one with another human being. But there are times when advising someone to stay is condemning them to exploitation. And I do not believe that is consistent with the love of the Lord our God and the full revelation of God, particularly as we find in Jesus Christ. 
Chapter 24, verse 8, they're going to begin to talk around the ninth commandment and how we live all of that out as well. Um, being honest, being being careful, being safe, being clean. Chapter 25 talks about leveret marriage, um, one of my least favorite concepts in the whole Bible. It was intended to prevent a line from dying out. So if a man died and his wife had no children, she married his brother, and the first child she conceives becomes the dead husband's heir so that his line didn't die out and so that she had someone to take care of her. Um, I'm, I'm thankful we don't practice this anymore either. Chapter 26 um, reviews first fruits and tithes, what we bring into the office, I mean, into the temple, and then it concludes with some final exhortations. That is a lot of material to cover this week. Hope you stayed in there as best you could with me. Um, I look forward to seeing what created questions for you, what resonated with you, and what you are learning in this journey as we read through Scripture this year. Thank you.